Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. This week, we have a special episode with guest Dr. Jonathan Trobe. He's a section leader of neuroophthalmology at the Kellogg Eye Center of the University of Michigan. Dr. Trobe has had a storied career, if you haven't heard of him already. He went to Harvard Med School, did his residency at Will's Eye, and a neuro-ophthalmology fellowship at Bascom. And then, after having a faculty position for a few years, did a full neurology residency at the University of Miami. Since being at the University of Michigan, he's been heavily involved in resident education and has won the teaching award countless times. He's seen the many triumphs and mistakes on the uh, Michigan's consult service through his time as faculty and is now here to share his wisdom. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Trobe. Ben, it's great to be a part of your great show. So to maximize our time with Dr. Trobe, I'll present four real cases with some minor details fudged, including demographic details, whether or not I actually saw the patient or not, and where and when these patients were seen. In each case, a seemingly small but critical mistake will have been made, and it will ask Dr. Trobe to dissect what went right or wrong. For the listener, I challenge you to listen carefully and see if you can catch mistakes in each case before Dr. Trobe reveals them. I hope this is valuable not only to junior residents, but also to senior residents or junior faculty who may be helping staff juniors for the first time. It is now your job to listen carefully for problems or inconsistencies in presentations when your juniors call you in the hospital or in the clinic. So we'll just get right into it. To start off, here's a case of a 21-year-old female graduate student who complained of blurry vision and some discomfort in her left eye. Her vision was 20-20 in the right and 20-20 minus in the left. Her intraocular pressure was 14 in both eyes. Her extraocular movements were full. Color plates were full. Uh, Ishihara color plates were full, 11 out of 11. Her anterior and posterior segment exams were unremarkable except for mild punctate epithelial erosions, i.e. dry eye in both eyes. On review of history, she has had several exams coming up and has been studying pretty heavily. She was diagnosed with dry eye and recommended frequent topical lubrication. And when I saw this patient on call once, I thought that'd be the end of it. But then she came back and said that the topical lubrication didn't do a thing. And then the patient was seen with myself, a junior at a time, and a senior resident. And then we said, oh, it's probably allergic conjunctivitis. Give patinol. And then they left, but then they came back and said that things really haven't changed a lick with their vision. What, do, do you have any comments on this case so far, Dr. Trobe? Well, I, I'm sure our listeners are, are glomming on to what is, is the missing piece of this examination. What is it? Well, we had to, we had attempted to check an afferent pupillary defect initially, but then on the third time that this poor graduate student came back, we checked the Af- APD again. And with now a neuro-ophthalmologist who happened to be on call with us at the time, noticed a subtle relative afferent pupillary defect. So, Dr. Trump, can you tell us what the importance of that is? Like, what, why, why is that relevant here? You know, we often say, or at least I often say, that if you had to pick one thing to take away from your ophthalmology rotation as a medical student— it would be learning the importance and the doing of the swinging flashlight test, which is designed to look for an afferent pupillary defect. Why is that so important? First of all, it's something that you can do when you are not a graduate of ophthalmology. And secondly, it's an objective, quick, and incredibly sensitive way of picking up asymmetric, pretty much optic neuropathy. 
I mean, there are exceptions to the rule that it's always an optic neuropathy. And Ben, as a retinal specialist, will know that if you have a magnificent retinal detachment that covers, you know, from stem to stern, you could get an afferent pupillary defect. But I can tell you, if you took 100 cases, 99.9 would be optic neuropathy. But but Dr. Trope, the vision was 20-20, that color plays through a full. Well, in my exam, my, my extremely detailed exam didn't show any problems with the posterior segment. So why, why does it matter to like check so hard? I think the second time I didn't even really think about the APD. You know, I make my living from the fact that people have vision problems and you don't see anything in the eye. And here's a perfect example. If you have something going on behind the eye that's affecting the optic nerve, you may very well see absolutely nothing when you look in the fundus, and the patient may even have 20-20 acuity because, uh, first of all, 20-20 is a gross oversimplification of vision. And the second thing is that, you know, you can affect the pathways of vision that are not in the maculopapular bundle and therefore spare acuity. We know that there are a lot of optic neuropathies, including optic neuritis, which is going to be, I'm sure you've guessed, the most likely diagnosis in a 21-year-old. But of course, she could have something else. Right. So to kind of continue the story from there, we then got a visual field test after seeing this subtle relative afferent pupillary defect. And just like Dr. Trobe just predicted, the very central part of the visual field was spared, but there were huge patches of missing vision peripherally in, in the left eye only. The next step for her was to do an MRI, which showed widespread demyelinating lesions and an enhancement of the left optic nerve. So then she was admitted for high-dose intravenous steroids. Ben, are you sure you're not a closet neuro-ophthalmologist? I mean, I'm told that you're a retina guy, but this, uh, this is going way beyond your lane. I mean, you seem to know an awful lot more about MRIs than, well, than I maybe I expected. Uh, our our neuro-ophthalmology training at my residency was very... Uh, I learned a lot from this specific case, perhaps, <laughs> Dr. Trump. Yeah, you, you, you learn from your mistakes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to go back for one second because I know Ben was gonna, is going to keep us moving along. Uh, about the uh, afferent pupillary defect, I think the, the, the general way I would put it is that most everyone knows about it, some people do it, and very few people do it correctly. So maybe a comment or two about doing it correctly. Because, you know, part of the problem is that ophthalmology, you know, you have to process patients pretty quickly through, and there are many ophthalmic practices, uh, including some of our own academic centers, where the pupil testing is not done by the doctors. It's done by the technicians, which is when or where you have to place an enormous emphasis on proper training of your technicians. And, and this happens here over and over again. We're, we're about every six months, we have to review how we are training our support personnel. Uh, because if you don't do it right, what's the point? Yeah, for sure. Do you have any comment on the value of the visual fields here? Like, I think if I were to had been suspicious that I had missed something, you know, the visual field definitely showed a huge uh, issue. Do you have any comment on the value of visual fields in cases like this? Yeah, you know, I, I am one of those people that keeps hammering away at the value of visual fields, especially facing the onslaught of structural imaging of the retina. I mean, OCT, we know that OCT is terrifically sensitive to structural abnormalities in the retina. It's a gift. The problem is it's a gift that keeps giving and taking away. 
What it's taking away is the emphasis on visual fields, which is a functional assessment of, of vision. And, you know, it takes longer. It's something you pretty much are having to do, at least if you're a resident. We generally ask you to, to at least get involved in doing it. And that takes time away. And I don't know, there seems to be a slippage. OCT up, visual fields down. Yeah. Well, what about confrontational visual fields? You know, those are nice and easy. They are, but confrontation visual fields really uh, pretty good for homonymous hemianopia, very poor for anything else. Mm. That's that's good to know. You know, and one just one comment of my own that I learned from this case because you know the color plates being full, I think made me really kind of get off my guard. But then the third time she came back, I did the color plates myself with her, and I noticed even though her color plates are full, that she was very slow at doing the color plates with her left eye. Yeah, I, you know, I, here's what I would say about the color plates. Remember that the Ishihara color plates, which is the, that's the, the color plate system that we, we mostly use, uh, it was not designed for acquired color vision deficiencies. Uh, it's very poor for that. It's designed for congenital color abnormalities, and that's not what we're talking about here. Don't depend on the Ishihara. In this case, it was either close to normal or normal, and that can certainly happen. I do not—don't put your eggs in that basket. Okay, so I think uh, there are a ton of points to learn from that case. Let's go on to another case that may have been seen more recently. So uh, this was a 72-year-old man who came in because he had temporal flashes in the right eye. He was found to be 20-20 in both eyes. This time it was seen as a fellow, so he had no relative afferent pupillary defect on multiple checks by the physician. Uh, they had also had full color plates, and they read them with equal speed in both eyes. So then he had a very thorough uh, and extensive scleral depressed exam by yours truly and was found to have a vitreous detachment in the right eye that we confirmed on OCT, the retina specialist's best friend, and then what appeared to be an old vitreous attachment in the left eye. So then they were given tear detachment precautions. And like what we usually do is see, see them again in a couple of weeks to make sure there weren't any tears that have developed given vitreous attachments can be dynamic processes. But then something interesting is that the patient said that he still was having these flashes in the right eye persistently. Uh, and, you know, he thought that it was kind of weird. He thought it would kind of start to fade away at this point. Okay, where did I screw up this time? Okay, do you, do do our listeners, listeners out there, do they, do you know, do you all know where this case is going I mean, this is what I call the mashing on the eye in a patient who has positive visual phenomena that are 100% attributed to the retina. I mean, that is fine, and that will work for you most of the time. But this is an example of where it did not work for you. The patient goes out with a sore eye and no diagnosis. Yeah, they were very sore. But what, how could I have been wrong? You know, he said that the, the patient said it was in his right temporal field, so I looked really, really closely at his nasal retina in the right eye. Where, where could I? Yeah, I mean, that was that was great. And I, I don't doubt that Ben and 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 uh, all those of you out there who are getting good training in, in retina uh, are learning how to look for peripheral retinal abnormalities, including, let's say, a detachment. The problem here is that the patient did not go to medical school and does not know that if if he experiences positive visual phenomena in one eye, especially if he thinks it's way out there on the temporal side, which he probably doesn't really tell you, that this could be a retrochiasmal 
process, meaning basically in the occipital lobe, in the gray matter of visual cortex. And, you know, if you think that's rare, it's not. Hmm. So what kind of things could be causing this then? Okay, none of them good. Uh Uh-oh. None of them good, and some of them needing early diagnosis. So some of what we're doing here, Ben and I, uh, is trying to help you avoid a delay in diagnosis. You know, in, in the, on the neuro side of ophthalmology, delay in diagnosis is basically going to be the big problem. It's not sins of commission, it's sins of omission. And you will pay heavily, and so will the patient, for uh, a sin of omission. This is one of them. The, this patient's got something going on in the occipital lobe, and um, I'll challenge you to name for me the things that this could be. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a moment to think about it, and then when you haven't figured it out, I'll tell you. All right, here, here's, the, here's the moment of truth. Number one, for transient uh, positive f- uh, phenomena, you know that's going to be migraine. But that's got to be, as Ben just finished telling you, uh-oh, it's not transient. This is persistent. And once it's persistent beyond, let's say, 30 minutes, then the red flag goes up. It's not migraine. So now what could it be? The most common cause would be stroke. This patient has had an ischemic event uh, affecting the occipital lobe, and it's sending out signals of cortical irritation uh, that we call scintillations or positive or flashes or something like that. Anyway, these are all positive phenomena. The second possibility is that this patient has focal seizures. And focal seizures are a little bit rare in the occipital lobe, but they definitely do occur. And most of the time, there's a structural abnormality, and the thing you fear most, of course, is that there's a tumor there. So I would say those are the main considerations, and both of them really need urgent diagnosis, particularly stroke. And the reason for that is if the patient is in atrial fibrillation, which is a common cause of an occipital stroke, the patient is in a stroke-prone state and could go on to have additional stroke. And if you don't make the diagnosis, then you will be held accountable. Yeah, I mean, it's a very real thing, that unfortunately, not with this specific case, thankfully, things were, were caught in time. But, um, you know, I think if you've seen enough patients, you'll have seen, you know, missed chances to prevent stroke. Let's move on to the next case to, to chat about. So this is a patient that had been operated on a, for a retinal detachment. So they had a macula off retinal detachment of the left eye that was done six months prior and they're coming back complaining of double vision. So they have 20-20 vision in the right eye and 2100 vision in the left. They appear to have a mild exotropia on the retina specialist version of an ocular alignment exam. On anterior segment exam, they had a one millimeter ptosis in the left eye, some two to three plus nucleosclerosis in the uh, cataract of the left eye and attached retina in both eyes. The diagnosis we're given was a sensory exotropia with some mild post-operative ptosis and referred to a cataract surgeon. Where, where did things go wrong? Okay, this is a trap that you and I can easily fall into. The first thing you're going to think of, of course, is there's something operative related here. 
I mean, that's what was thought here. And that was, you know, that was a very reasonable idea. You have somebody who, especially if this patient had a retinal buckle, which I don't think you told us, Ben. Uh, yeah, let's say they had a buckle, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's always the thing is buckle, buckle, buckle. There's a, some scar tissue and, you know, and so uh, adios. Uh, not much we can do about it. The sensory XT, there's another big trap. First of all, sensory XT, you know, has got to be a cometant exotropia. Uh, I, I have a hard time making this into a sensory XT so soon after the surgery, 2100 acuity. Oh, boy, watch out for that, especially since there's ptosis. Now you've got two elements that you have to put together, for, and you're going to make them into different causes. This is classic bad thinking and is going to get you into real trouble. Uh, because these are two components of something else, namely what? What else could this be? I mean, you know, well, did anybody think of anything else here? Uh, not really, right? No. no, of course not. I mean, I could see myself doing this. But you know that ptosis and exodeviation especially if it's incompetent, and that term just keeps coming up all the time. If the patient's uh, misalignment, the exo, is worse in right gaze on this patient than it was in left gaze, wow, that's an adduction deficit, uh, even if you didn't see it. And that now that's starting you down the road toward the components of a third nerve palsy. That sounds dangerous. Can you remind us briefly what some of the more urgent and dangerous pathology that can cause a third nerve palsy are? Okay, well, the one that stands up, you know, uh, front and center is an aneurysm. And the thing about aneurysms is they can affect people pretty much at any age. It seems to me that it's always cutting off people in the prime of their life. People who didn't do anything wrong, like, you know, eat too much fat or, you know, sit on the, on the couch too long and have neglected hypertension. These are congenital abnormalities that get worse over time. And what we're talking about here is an unruptured but expanding aneurysm that is usually going to be where? At the junction of the posterior communicating artery and the carotid artery. Now, not the only place, but the main place. And... You know, you got to get in there before that ruptures. Not you, but somebody <laughs> right. who knows how to do this. Right. I, cataract surgery is great, but a referral to a cataract surgeon, probably, he probably won't be able to get into that aneurysm, I'm guessing. Right. By the way, aneurysm surgery now has shifted, as you, I'm sure, all know. Uh, the, the people who used to do craniotomies with clipping went back to school to learn how to do uh, interventional coiling uh, and stenting, uh, which is pretty much the way we're going now. Not exclusively, but that's, that would, would be the, the thing that, that this patient would be offered if the imaging showed an aneurysm. So you may wonder what kind of imaging and how soon. Answer, yesterday. And the imaging that you want to do is going to most likely be a CTA. That may not be intuitive to you because MRI is so sensitive to everything, but CTA is quick and is enormously sensitive to aneurysm that's large enough to cause a third nerve palsy. So I, I guess a, another thing that's confusing about this is from my medical school textbooks, third nerve palsies are where you have this massive ptosis, the eye can be barely open, the eyes way down and out. I mean, this is like a mild, you know, exotropia. Yeah, it is. And, you know, this is the difference between being good and just being, you know, usual. You're looking at a partial third nerve palsy, and one of the rules about aneurysms and third nerve palsy is you don't need the two Ps. You don't need pain. You don't need a pupil. So, you know, the patient didn't have pain here. The patient didn't have a pupil. The patient could easily have an aneurysm. Okay, very, very good. 
Okay, so the the last case that we'll talk about this episode is we have an obese 42-year-old woman who presents with blurry central vision in both eyes. Her vision was 2100 in both eyes. There was no relative afferent pupillary defect, and she had one out of 11 color plates. She had full extraocular movements, and her anterior and posterior segment exam were unremarkable except for optic disc swelling in both eyes. She was then diagnosed with papilledema, or uh, I, I guess they were diagnosed with idiopathic intracranial hypertension and just prescribed acetazolamide and told to come back in a month. But Okay, so Ben, let's go back over this case. Uh-huh. Because, you, you know, this one you will gnash your teeth over. I can tell you that even the neuro-ophthalmologists in your, you know, association are going to have trouble with this. We always do. Let's go back over this. Uh-huh. Let's, get, let's get the patient's age again, Ben. Okay, she's 42. She's 42, and she, her, uh, her presenting symptoms are? Central blurry vision. Okay, so a blurred vision in one eye or in both? In both eyes. In both eyes. Okay, that's unusual to have blurred vision in both eyes. You know, most of the time in ophthalmology, we're dealing with maybe one eye is, is, is having blurred vision. This is both. Okay, then the, the key exam findings are? She's 2100 in both eyes, and she had optic disc swelling in both eyes. Okay, so this, this is where the, the rubber meets the road. We are really struck by the fact that she has very poor visual acuity in both eyes. So already an unusual case. One of the things I'm going to ask Ben is how severe is the optic disc edema? Can we grade the, the optic disc edema? Uh, you know, we would probably have called it moderate, if I remember correctly. Okay, and I, I, Ben is doing this deliberately, because if you see moderate, I can tell you that you, you have to learn a classification for uh, optic disc edema. By the way, this terminology is very difficult here, because as you know, uh, elevated optic discs basically come in two forms, congenital and acquired. And some people call a congenital form uh, pseudopapilledema. That's okay. I, I don't like that term, but you can do it as long as you make the distinction between congenital and acquired. And I think Ben is trying to tell us here that with somebody with 2100 acuity in both eyes with new, new complaints of vision loss and elevated optic disc, this is acquired optic disc elevation. The question is, is it papilledema? Ben, do we really think this is papilledema? Not anymore. Not anymore. Okay, and that's because we're doing a radio show, uh-huh. right? A podcast. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to emphasize this to you. People who have papilledema usually have relatively spared visual acuity and even visual field, not normal perhaps, but relatively spared, uh, unless their papilledema has one of two features. Either it's horrendous, meaning that it's really florid with cotton wool spots and hemorrhages, or and, and edema leaking into the, into the fovea so that you can get acuity reduced because of that, or it's atrophic. Atrophic means the nerves have all died, this patient has come much too late, and by now visual acuity is trashed. But otherwise, and what Ben is describing here doesn't sound like it meets the grade. So I would have a lot of trouble calling this papilledema. And now we've got to figure out what else causes an elevated optic disc with a visual dysfunction. So do you want to take a guess before we launch into that? What else could do this? Hope our listeners know. I'm so lost. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're, 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 yeah. And this is hard. This is where you're going to have to say 
what are my other optic neuropathies that'll give me a, uh, acquired optic disc elevation in both eyes and visual acuity that's down in the 2100 range? The first thing you're going to have to think about, even though this patient's middle-aged, is optic neuritis or versions of optic neuritis like papillitis or neuroretinitis. You don't have the famous macular star figure, but that doesn't come right away. So, you know, it certainly could be that. Some inflammatory optic neuropathy. The other possibility is the patient could have compressive disease of both optic nerves, slowing down axoplasm and giving you an elevated optic disc. That would be enormously unusual because uh, it's on both sides. So... What I think we're mostly thinking of is inflammatory, and then sitting in the background here is the possibility that this is ischemic. And this patient's 42 years old, and you're thinking, oh, come on, who gets ischemia at age 42? Answer, many people. And that's always a concern. Could this be arteritic? Could it be inflammatory and ischemic? Unlikely, uh, because the most common form is giant cell arteritis, and she's really much too young for that. I, I would think that would be a, really a remote consideration. But one very strong possibility here is that this is a, an inflammatory optic neuropathy. Now, do you have any comment on there not being a relative afferent pupillary defect in this patient? Ah, that takes us back to the beginning of this podcast. Mm -hmm. And maybe we didn't mention that, uh, that when you say an afferent pupillary defect, you really mean a relative afferent pupillary defect. And some programs, maybe the one where you're going to school, use the term RAPD, which means relative afferent pupillary defect. And that's very good because it is always relative, meaning that one side has to be, one eye has to be uh, in more trouble than the other. Here, you may have symmetrical visual dysfunction, no APD. Okay. That's, th th those are some of the cases that, uh, that, that we wanted to go through with Dr. Trobe. Do you have any other, like, closing comments or thoughts? Well, a closing comment, if you're uh, sitting uh, waiting to hear what was the story on this last patient or where to go, obviously the next story, and you know, you, you, if you scratch any neuro-ophthalmologist, they'll tell you imaging, imaging, imaging. Mm -hmm. So you have to image this patient. The one thing, the one clue that I would give you here is get orbit-based or optic nerve-based imaging, because if you don't, you're not going to see the optic nerve well. And we, again, gnash our teeth over this. Patients, get in, even in our emergency room here at the August University of Michigan, sometimes our patients are hustled into the MRI scanner for a brain MRI scan, and that gives us very disappointing imagery of the optic nerves. And we just, um, we just have to send the patient right back to get another MRI scan because you really need to be able to see the changes. The reason you don't see the orbits well is, first of all, they're not accentuated in a brain MRI, and the other is we don't get fat suppression, typically, and you really need that. So keep that in mind. And do you need contrast or no? Yes, you do. You do. You know, there's some people who can't tolerate contrast, but uh, and then there are some people who can't even have an MRI scan, and we have to settle for a CT scan, but, you know, you face that when you have to. You know, Ben, I'm, I'm going to make one last comment. Many, many years ago, I was an ophthalmologist in, in the United States Air Force, and I, I had just finished my residency at Will's Eye, and I, I came to Washington, D.C. to serve there. And, you know, I would see a lot of patients, and some of them had kind of what we would, you would call neuro-ophthalmic things, meaning 
uh, inscrutable, difficult to diagnose, hard histories to obtain. And you know what I did with those patients? I had a separate clinic on Thursday mornings, and I left that open for all of all of the patients that I considered difficult uh, and hard to diagnose. And they got their they got a sequestered clinic that allowed me to spend a little bit more time. I don't know any way around it. I think you just have to recognize that in some people, the secrets are hard to unlock. But just do the exam properly. Going back to that afferent pupillary defect, you know, learn that you don't have to necessarily see a pupil that, that expands way up when you bring the light toward it. Sometimes it's just a difference in the dynamics of pupil constriction, and, and that, will, that will help you a lot. Awesome. Uh, if you like this episode and would like more episodes like this, if you'd like me to drag Dr. Trope back in on a lovely Sunday afternoon when he could be having a delightful brunch instead or kicking someone's butt at tennis, then uh, leave us a, a rating or review, or you can email us if you'd like more of, of this kind of format or more episodes of Dr. Trobe. Otherwise, I hope everyone can uh, at least think of a nice thank you for Dr. Trope for coming in, and we'll see you guys next week. It was my pleasure, Ben. Love doing it.